This is Konsenshu, the podcast, episode 493, for the week of June 19th, 2022. Hello and welcome back to Konsenshu, the podcast, an extension of the all-encompassing Dragon Ball fan site, Konsenshu. We cover anything and everything Dragon Ball in hopes of enlightening and a little bit of entertaining. Hey, welcome back indeed, everyone. My name is Mike. Perhaps you see me around as Vegito EX. Uh, apologies for a little bit of a delay in between new episodes here. Uh, I had a couple of guest appearance episodes in the meantime that were meant to act as a buffer, and then I got a little sick and the voice just wasn't there, and well, here we are in June. <laughs> but we are back in the swing of things, and we have a doozy for you this time around. It is our fourth Live from Japan theatrical film review. Yes, it is Dragon Ball Super Superhero Podcast Review Time with Julian. You know him, Julian. Username, Saya Jedi. Here from Konzenshu itself, as well as Ian Cypher back on the podcast. So excited to have them both live from Japan while it was live when I recorded it and it wasn't live during the movie. You understand where I am going with this. You will hear in the segment, but the review is split down the middle. Um, largely spoiler-free for the first, like, third-ish to half, and then spoiler territory discussions to the end from there on out after that. So you can make your own choice for a little or how long you want to stick around with the episode. After that, uh, after the review, I'll be back to hit you up with some website goings-ons a little more in-depth, but if you don't want to stick around for the spoiler talk, but do want to tease of what's going on on the website... Um, here are some quick details. Lots of new translations. Zenpai in particular has wrapped up that full three-part Unite Tokyo 2019 panel where we get all sorts of amazing background information on the development of the first Dragon Ball Z Budokai video game for the PlayStation 2. Check it out. And don't forget our Patreon, but more on that toward the end of the episode. Let's get into it. It is time. It's review time. Here we go. Dragon Ball Super, Superhero. I'll check you on the flip side. Here we are, mid-June 2022, for the fourth time we're actually able to bring you a, a review of a new Japanese theatrical movie very shortly after release. Uh, I'm excited to have on two people who are actually in Japan, who actually saw the movie in actual theaters and can actually speak the language. Um, two of them could probably do this entire review in Japanese, but for myself and for you, dear listener, we will conduct this in English. Uh, first up, because he's ready, uh, Ian Cypher, hello, welcome back to the show. Hey, happy as always to be here. And then uh, slightly less prepared, but always as welcome, Julian. Hey, I was experiencing technical difficulties, thank you. Yeah, I know. Look, this I know what this microphone should sound like. It's not quite there, but we're, we'll work on it. We'll get it there. <laughs> Julian, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I know you had a busy a evening. So, yeah. uh, oh my God, y'all, Dragon Ball Super, superhero. New Japanese theatrical film, Dragon Ball. It's continuing uh, in animated form here in a movie. Oof. Okay, so here's what we're going to do this episode. We are going to roughly split it into two parts. Uh, first part is going to be largely spoiler-free, stuff you would know from maybe trailers, and we'll talk around things a little bit. Um, and then we'll draw a line in the sand. We'll do some story-specific spoilers and talk that requires us acknowledging specific beats. So if you want to stick around for the first half, awesome. 
Love to have you here. Um, if you don't care one way or the other, love to have you through the whole thing. I have a very important conversation I want to have at the end that is based on something Ian said previously that he doesn't remember saying. So I am so excited. To have I, that I don't remember. I'm so excited to learn what I said. <laughs> so um, strap in, everybody. We are here to talk about Dragon Ball Super Superhero. All right. So we, we have to start off by acknowledging that this is a new animated film in a completely new animated style. Um, much to my surprise, I remember one night on uh, Mario Kart, actually, we, we barely knew anything about it. And there was that comment about, oh, we're going for a new visual style. And someone's like, hey, you think it's going to be CG? And I'm like, nah, never, never in a million years would they do a CG movie. And here we are in June 2022 with a fully CG Dragon Ball movie. Um, Ian, I want to start with you. You've you've thrown this word weight out there um, with regard to the, the look and the feel of the film. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I... I didn't really know what to expect when they announced it would be in CG. I did think, based on that first comment where they were talking about a new visual style, I was was pretty sure. Oh, that means CG. That's how they're they're coding it for right now. Because um, there's been a big push, I think, across multiple animation studios in Japan in the last decade or so to do CG movies, mm-hmm. um, and it's something they talked about wanting for Dragon Ball in the past. So yeah, I didn't really know what to think about it. I had uh, reservations and trepidations, like I think most fans. We we've only ever seen Dragon Ball in one style and. We were just coming off of a film where I think the the vast sort of consensus was that it was the best Dragon Ball had ever looked in hand-drawn right. animation. Yeah, yeah. So right? I think, yeah. yeah, a lot of people were excited to see them continue in that style and continue to uh, develop on that. Um, so I think in, in that way as well, uh, switching to CG was a, a bit of a sore point for, for people. I did think that a lot of the early content looked good as far as how they were replicating Toriyama's style um, sort of as well as they could in CG. Uh, but yeah, one thing that I was really, I, I don't know how much it was on my mind, but I, w- I was a little bit curious about how the, the action would look especially. And I think what really brought me on board when I was seeing it in theaters was, uh, I thought the action looked really good and felt really good. I guess one of the things that gets me in Dragon Ball animation, maybe more so than the, the choreography even, mm-hmm. uh, is the feeling of impact, right? Like how big yeah. do these fights feel and how much weight do they have to them? Like Dragon Ball has a really... Uh, fun and and engaging sense of scale to it, right? Uh, obviously, you're, right. you're taking these martial arts arts uh, action pieces that get ridiculously huge and sort of incomprehensible in scale, but there's still this real weight to them, and I think that visceral feeling is really important uh, both in the manga. I think it really comes through in Toriyama's artwork and also in the animation. Um, and I just remember having a moment. I I don't know what fight it was during. It was probably either during the first. Gamma Piccolo fight or one of the later ones uh, with the Gammas, but there's a moment where one of the characters takes off and there's this kind of shockwave behind them, mm. uh, like sort of jet stream behind them. It's it's a thing you've seen, like you see it fairly frequently in DB, but yeah. uh, it was really visceral. Like I remember really thinking, especially in a theater, like I felt the impact of them taking off like that. And part of it was the theater sound, but part of it was also uh, the visuals and the sound design and just the direction of the movie. And I think that really continued through all the, all the fights. Like, I really felt a sense of impact to each blow and a sense of scale to that. And I was able to get on board with the fact that I was watching action in Dragon Ball scale, and especially toward the end of the movie in a scale that felt like it was believably kind of continuing on after the Boo arc, mm-hmm. which Dragon Ball has trouble with a lot of times because how <laughs> how huge and how, yeah, yeah. how large can you get with a sense of scale then? But I really... Um, felt it. And I, I don't know what part of that was just the direction here, which I think was, was very good, and what part of it was the medium being CG. 
Sure. But I felt like those were at least working in concert to really deliver um, weight and impact the action, which I think really stuck with me. And I, I was surprised how seamlessly they managed to transfer a lot of the Dragon Ball animation tropes to the CG. I had a lot of trepidation around, you know, typical exaggerated things like facial expressions and pratfalls, which, you know, it's, it's post-boo comedy elements mm -hmm. are there. But it actually worked pretty well. And there were a few moments where I felt like maybe the models were moving a bit stiffly, but it was not that frequent. And I think they managed to use the visual effects uh, and the camera work to good effect and to mask whatever limitations that they might have experienced. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, because this being a CG film, they can just move the camera around without uh, quote unquote reanimating the scene. I mean, that's very much glossing over the specifics of production <laughs> there, but uh, you kind of get where I'm coming from. Um, did that 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 feel very different, but still at play? I kind of don't know what the question is there. <laughs> like, there's a lot of sort of zooming in and out and around in ways that would take a lot of extra animation and background work in previous movies, and probably did sometimes when they utilize similar effects, but. Uh, they put that to a lot of work. I do remember certain scenes in the fights where the camera actually swoops around the characters as they're fighting, which could be slightly disorienting, but it adds to the weight, like Ian mentioned. Mm. It really gives it a sense of scale. Yeah, I think that might be part of it as well. Um, just feeling the scale of the environment and the fights as well uh, might owe a little bit to the freedom of the camera movement. I guess my one comment on that is uh, we had similar swooping and and rotating camp quote-unquote camera movement in in broly especially right yeah but, yeah uh i think one of the differences is that those were sort of highlight shots in that movie mm -hmm. those were really like stand out like wow you're really taking notice of the animation in those moments um because you see them so rarely and here they were just sort of part of the visual language throughout like you don't really Got notice it. them as much they're just part of the whole fabric of the fights um, and you threw out that word choreography. I want to mention that a little bit. That's sort of something that Tadayoshi Yamamoto brought to the table with Resurrection F, um, at least. Um, this being a CG film, does it feel like video game characters kind of like clanking into each other? Or is there the, there a, a sense of actual kind of like motion and intent? Um, I, I think this looks better than any piece of Dragon Ball video game animation I've ever seen, um, which I guess should maybe go without saying based on my first comments. Um, yeah, I would say this probably has uh, one. I'll, I'll say there are probably people that are more qualified to talk about this than I am. People who are big martial arts film buffs, which I'm not. Um, I definitely do appreciate those moments in uh, Resurrection F and Broly both stand out on that front. But I'll say, yeah, I think this probably had weaker choreography. Like, I think there were less interesting bits of movement happening. Um, but for me, as, what I, as far as what I want out of Dragon Ball... Um, the sense of scale and, and impact and speed to the fights was there in a in kind of a rare way for me, um, where that made up for a lot of it. Like yeah. I felt more present in them and I felt more excited uh, and involved in them. Um, so comparing it to something like Resurrection F, I can really appreciate the little bits of of martial arts action that it has. I think especially in well throughout throughout yeah. for for both the grunt fight and and the Frieza fight. Um, and, and Broly has really flashy animation. I don't know how accurate to any kind of martial arts it is. It's <laughs> kind of fantasy, super-powered yeah, yeah. scale on that one throughout. Um, but I think that my general impression was that 
nothing in this movie is as flashy or as noticeable as the fighting choreography in those two. Um, but the sense of scale and weight uh, make up for that for me. Agreed. And and uh, some of it also plays into a kind of almost winking stylization that goes in in hand in hand with the superhero theme. Uh, we can talk about that a bit later in some more detail, but they sort of make this conscious effort to give it that sense of dramatic uh, weight behind it that you might find in a superhero fight, or at least a good superhero fight. You know, I, I started off talking about the animation. I feel like that's the thing that's going to grab your attention immediately just because of the shift. Uh, but for me, I come to Dragon Ball for the characterization uh, and the writing, especially as time goes on and the the production changes. And I, I kind of reevaluate what I like about the series and these characters. Everything that I've heard about this film is that it is whimsical and you will be immediately charmed by it. <laughs> Um, is that too leading of a question? Is that accurate for this film? I would say that that's true. Yeah, I I would agree. Um, Yeah, I had a great time with this. I think you can really feel Toriyama back on the dialogue. Um, Oh, yeah. I do do enjoy the the Dragon Ball Super manga, which is not written by him, but it's a night and day difference when you actually have him on a script. And I think, yeah, it's just always refreshing to have that again. Uh, And there's such a difference between that and Dragon Ball Super in either serialized, serialized form. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think for me too, that's a big thing where I, a lot of pe- fans are down on uh, Resurrection F, but that still is head and shoulders above any of the original Run Z movies for me, just because you can really feel Toriyama on script and oh yes, more so than than Broly and F for me. Uh, I think you can feel him both being on script here and also enjoying what he's doing on script and and ideation wise, and that goes a long way. Absolutely. And just the way that the, the characters play off of each other in this movie, the banter is really on the ball. And I also felt that the way that he deals with the necessary information, of course, one of his ways of tackling info dumps, as we might call them, is by having characters talking to each other. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You got to introduce them in like duos, at least. Right. But instead of just doing like a cryptic conversation or an as you know, for some odd reason, yeah. because we already know right. these details, they actually have it presented as uh, these videos that have been written, edited, and produced by one of the characters and presumably uploaded on the internet because they're interspersed with other things like, this is my watch collection. Yeah, I think you see video comments on one of them at one point. Yeah, that's great. That they're an upload. Uh, yeah, that was an unexpected sort of comedy highlight for me. But yeah, there's a lot of... Not just uh, exposition through character exchanges and dialogue, but um, pretty much every one of those scenes has yeah a comedy element built into it as well. And they're really dry, too. I think this is something that gets lost when Toriyama is not the one writing Dragon Ball comedy. When you mm-hmm. see comedy in Super TV or or any of the previous, like the original Ron Z movies, they go for really broad humor with the characters. And Toriyama's character humor has always struck me as being very dry. Yeah. Like, Oh, his yes. scenarios and his characters and his worlds are, are completely ridiculous, but he has kind of a dry approach to the character exchanges within those. And I think that is really present in this script. And I think it's also really handled well direction wise. Um, hmm. Oh, yeah. I haven't loved the direction on the comedy in, I think, especially Broly and F. Um, like the Jocko scenes in F are like not, not filmed in a very interesting way or not directed in a very interesting way. And I think the comedy gets a little bit lost in those. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. early. I always think back to the the Bulma Frieza analog scenes where they're talking about their wishes, and it seems like it's supposed to be a dry comedy beat, but it's directed in this really strange, over the top way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That has always struck me as being kind of at odds with the script. Yes. And uh, I feel, yeah, for the first time in this one, I feel like the dry character humor is delivered in a way or directed in a way that feels like a Toriyama manga. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. And I think we're going to get into a lot about uh, Piccolo in a little bit. I, we There will be a lot to say about him, but particularly his very subtle behavior surrounding um, this this stuffed animal that shows up a fair bit and and his reactions and his reactions to other people with it and uh, it, it's it's really funny and it's sort of really dry really he wants to say something but he can't because of who it's from and he's sort of put out by that and it's just con- it's continued to escalate over time we could talk about maybe one of those moments just as, as an example when we're talking about like dry character humor sure. um because one of them was in pre-release material uh we got that 30 second clip of piccolo at his house yes um yes. which i guess can count as non-spoilers right sure yeah. um so, so just things like that and the way he holds the phone he picks it up with two fingers like he's demon king piccolo holding a dragon ball he's, he's like uh-huh. very uncomfortable with the technology and you just you get a lot of moments like that where there's something really subtle in the way the models are handled or the way the scene is directed that just adds a lot of that dry character humor and and when i talk about dry character humor i actually want to shout out mike i think you talked about this in some old jocko podcast but there's uh-huh. a moment in jocko where he says I know what that is. Uh, you, or I know what you are. You're a little girl, and that's a dog, or something. Yeah, that was, that, I that, wanted that, to bring yes, that up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. That to me is emblematic. When I say dry character human Toriyama, I, I don't know if people will necessarily get what that means, but that's the moment I think of where it's like it's not. It's not even necessarily funny. It's just like yeah. What What did you just say? It's just these weirdos interacting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That the humor from that really comes through here. Yes, and there are just so many moments of Piccolo being awkward in this film and delightfully awkward in very, very subtle ways. Like, like you said, the way that he holds the phone instead of just picking it up in his hand. I feel like we've been overdue for awkward uncle Piccolo for a very long time. Like we've had <laughs> hints of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm here for it. Um, we have a lot to get to. So I want to kind of start bringing the, this first half to a close a little bit, because there's so many specifics I want to ask and talk about. Um, yeah. How about, the character designs for the new folks. We have new characters in here. And Julian, thanks for correcting my outline here. Uh, we've got the Gamos. We've got Magento. We've got Carmine. We've got Dr. Hedo. I mean, they they look like classic Toriyama. Like, I could pluck these guys out of one of his one-shots, maybe. Yeah, I definitely got that vibe. And particularly Magenta and Carmine, the way they really give off a sort of I don't want to know if I really want to bring up uh, Dragon Ball Z movie 11 here, although perhaps Bio Broly will be uh, relevant to something else we talk about later. But the villains, so to speak, of that movie kind sure, of remind yeah, me of yeah. the ones in this one. The like squat character. We got the tall guy playing off of each other. I mean, that's their designs. Did, did they feel kind of like one note in? I mean, I don't even know how to ask that question, but. Did they fit? Did they did they truly feel like they belong to the Dragon Ball world? I mean, I'd say so. I mean, to an extent, you have a little bit of a similar vibe with uh, 
red and black from the Red Ribbon Army. Although I think I think Magenta does acknowledge Carmine's competence quite a bit more. I mean, black was treated terribly by red. Um, yeah, I definitely thought of the red-black parallel, uh, obviously, given the, their roles in the film before I did Movie 11. And maybe Movie 11 is also taking a nod from uh, red and black, or at least that trope that sort of character duo in Toriyama's work but uh, although yeah, that is interesting to note another potential uh, bio broly parallel there uh, <laughs> yeah I mean they fit I, I will say Carmine in particular looks like someone that I don't think would have shown up in Dragon Ball in its original run but he looks mm-hmm. like plenty of Toriyama characters that have come since and I think the same is true of the Gammas um, they don't particularly yeah. look like Toriyama original run dragon ball but they look like a lot of characters he's designed since uh, before before and after really all right so we're, we're kind of going to close off the first part here with final thoughts which is i know is a little strange but just roll with it for now uh and you said this is probably the most fun you've had with the dragon ball film yeah i i have trouble i guess thinking of like rankings for the movie which is not a thing you ever need to do in real life for any reason with any piece of art but um if i had to i'm not sure where i'd put this in battle of gods um battle of gods is so creative and and you can really feel toriyama's investment there and it's so good at acting as an epilogue for the series as well as a springboard for everything that's come since that it's kind of unimpeachable in that regard um Mm -hmm. it's almost like it's a piece of the original run for me where i even if i have more fun with things that come afterward it's kind of hard to say they're they're better than it but i will say i I think unequivocally this is the most fun i've had watching a dragon ball movie and i think uh if you said which 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 is better or or which is like which would i hold up as as a more creative piece i would have trouble between this and battle of gods but as far as which one i put put a bigger smile on my face during a first viewing it's this one easily and i i think much more so Mm. than with broly and uh, yeah, with Broly even leaving the theater, I, I had a great time with it. But I, the more I thought about it afterward, the more I was like, oh, uh, like that doesn't really, that didn't feel like it was quite working. Or, or just like the more I thought about it, the more <laughs> issues I found. And this one, the more I think about it, the yeah, Broly the I found I yeah. was a lot of spectacle, uh, especially in this in the in the second half. The beginning works all right, although I think episode of Bardock largely has the same problems that it had as a comic. And they weren't really significantly altered coming into animation. You mean Dragon Ball? Or Dra- Dragon Ball Minus. Sorry, yeah, the stuff with Bardock and uh, Goku's origins. Yeah, uh, that one I was entertained, but I didn't come away from it feeling particularly. I don't know exactly. Like it, it didn't stick with me very much. I had trouble remembering a lot of it afterwards. I, the novel helped jog my memory, even though the novel's treatment of some of the fight scenes is a bit dry. I couldn't with that. I tried. I tried so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's so boring. All right. We've talked about the the art and the whimsy and the characters, and I, we have more to say, so let's, let's draw the line in the sand here, and we're going to continue onward. This is the point moving forward where if you do not want to know specifics about the film, very direct minutia, and I don't have a choice because I'm here for the rest of the episode, but you have a choice, dear listener. You can choose to turn it off and come back later, or if you want to stick around, uh, here we go. And I'm going to jump around in my own outline. So, haha, I want to jump back to visual style and flair a little bit. Um, Julian, I saw you talking about this a little bit. Um, things like the movie playing with the medium a bit. You talked about the uh, radio playing background music, sound effects appearing behind characters, 
um, characters asking very important questions, like yeah. from an audience perspective, almost. Yeah, I just really found that throughout the movie, they sort of had were having fun playing with the medium, and I'm not sure if that was Toriyama's doing. But uh, as I mentioned before, the way that the info dumps were handled in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way of being videos written, produced, and directed by one of the characters, and it it, it just jumps out from there. Yeah, yeah. like Magenta is coming to a very important. Uh, plot-specific explanation to Dr. Hedo, the driver, I can't remember if it's Carmine who's driving, but he pointedly turns on the radio and there's dramatic music. Yeah, that, that's Carmine, yeah. He he sweetens the, the pitch there with some yes. uh, triumphant hero music. Uh, and everything about the Gammas, they are not just sort of programmed to see themselves as heroes, but they just embody these hero tropes from like old Japanese tokusatsu TV shows. And they kind of strike me as a balance between like very old Super Sentai and early Ultraman, especially with the way that Gamma 1 has one thing coming out of his head and Gamma 2 has two. And they're dramatically introducing themselves, particularly Gamma 2, who is like the more the more into all these hero tropes of the two. When he introduces himself, he has like a whole explosion and a sound effect behind him, which seems just like, you know, a typical hero trope. But later in the film, he's doing the same thing uh, to an unamused Gamma 1, and you actually see it from behind. He actually has a holographic projection of this sound effect and explosion in order to do the hero thing. But that seems completely in character at the same time. That's great. And it, it actually, it comes up before this. I didn't remember this from my viewing, but uh, I was reminded by the novel. During their fight, Piccolo has a little quip where he's like, what's up with those letters? Um, <laughs> indicating that he sees them too. And then you get the reveal a few scenes after that where you see them from behind and it's it's a hologram that they're projecting. Um, but it's great. And it leaves you with a, a little while to wonder if Piccolo's quip is just fourth wall breaking or not, uh, uh-huh. and then it, they they give you the answer that it is actually happening in the <laughs> yeah. world of the film in a really silly in character way. Tell me about. I'm not sure how much there is. I've certainly already seen the. Uh, I guess is this the first time we get a name, a, a real name for uh, a couple characters at the. Are we going to do the, the canon thing of now? The film here. <laughs> I guess we got to talk about the canons. Uh, Julian, I, I feel like you'll translate something and then 10 years later, Toriyama is still hung up on that thing. And here we go. We get it in either a, a chapter or a movie or something. Yeah, there are on the family tree. We get uh, Dr. Gero. We get his wife, Fumi, um, who is not Android 21 in the movie that's never mentioned. It's just that's his wife. She has the same character design as Android 21, the games. And there's a bunch of game specific lore there. Um, and then, yeah, we see a picture for their first son, Gebo, uh, who looks like Android 16 and is confirmed to be the model for him in in continuity in, in a bunch of video games. That's not mentioned in the film either, but you can kind of put two and two together. Uh, and then, yeah, they had a an additional child, no photo given in the family tree in Carmine's video. Uh, and then that child, it was the parent of Dr. Hedo. All right. I feel like we got to get into like what actually happens here um you've already name dropped the tbc movie 11 the the concept of bio broly look (laughs) i I know everything that happens here and i'm wrapping my head around all this and this is kind of where i want to have this real deep discussion with something that ian said to me podcasts ago that left such a major impression on me and ian's doing this 
like for me, it was Tuesday. I don't remember what I said to you. <laughs> right. I truly don't. I don't remember saying this. I have used this word in other like during other times I've talked about Dragon Ball. I just don't remember the context. Got it. Uh, All right. Of the so podcast. what we were talking about was basically we were talking about the state of Dragon Ball anime and manga. You and I were talking about manga specifically. Um, we were noting like how if you went into a coma and you woke up and you looked at things like Dragon Ball Heroes or you flipped through the pages of V-Jump, you would never know that Dragon Ball GT had ever left the cultural zeitgeist of Japan, how it's it's everywhere within this material. Um, and we determined that Shueisha and Toei would be completely content if today's kids never watched a single episode of GT because it's iconography. Things like its transformations, its characters, its matchups even uh, are kind of like strong enough to pull through and capture all new child imaginations. And so kind of like my central question, as I, I was thinking about this, as I was reflecting on everything I've read about this film, Dragon Ball has done callbacks before and they were prevalent throughout Dragon Ball Super, The I would say the TV series specifically. I mean, you think to how many moments where they're like, hey, remember, this is the thing that they did back then? Oh, um, up through way including, too many like, moments. Vegeta's sacrifice, which wasn't even actually a sacrifice. So was it truly that? But they <laughs> told you to think about that moment. So it was a callback to that. But So my, my question for Superhero is... Is it relying on this previous iconography by way of things like the Red Ribbon Army, um, even Gohan snapping, uh, Cell existing, Gohan versus Cell, uh, this group, even specific members of this group versus a huge bio monster? Is it relying too much on this or is it kind of like setting up this iconography for an all new audience where they don't care that you haven't seen this before, but they're going to exploit it in a way. I, I'm still working through what my question is there. So kind of roll with it from there for me, if you can. Oh God, that that's interesting. Um, The last part of that is interesting in particular. I'll, I'll let Julian speak first uh, if you would like to. Yes. Well, I, I do in a way feel like it's sort of treading well-worn ground. I mean, Re Resurrection F is about, Frieza coming to Earth to enact his revenge. We saw that in the original sure, series. Right, right. But but today's kids wouldn't necessarily have seen that. So for them, it was, I've heard about this thing, but this is my version of that thing. You know, it's a. I suppose you could see it that way. I'm not sure how deliberate it is. But we do know with Broly that they actually gave Toriyama different ideas for a story and then had him sort of develop them right and notably he actually did go back and watch the old films too so this like yeah he might have watched movie 11 but like oh that's kicking around for me maybe i can do something with that later so it does feel in a way that they're sort of treading this well-worn ground because they know the fans latch onto it and they know the fans know at least some of it even if they haven't seen it directly i, I kind of want to come at that question from from two angles yeah. um so so one is uh, how does this feel in comparison to like prior Dragon Ball material? How derivative or not derivative or how reliant on past material does this feel? Um, I think the answer is a lot. Like it feels very, very reliant on past material in a way that uh, nothing in the original run ever did. And I think mm. the, well, Resurrection and F and, and Broly definitely do, right? So um, in large ways, Super is more comfortable using callbacks and past iconography than Dragon Ball in its heyday ever was, right? Every yeah. storyline in Dragon Ball, 
they did bring back the the red ribbon army for the android arc but it felt like it had basically no connection it was just there to give the the most minor of setup no characters coming back yeah yeah um Nothing like that. It was just a background bullet point. And we've seen in the new material, especially from Toriyama, um, Resurrection F. Broly in this film, he's very open to reusing past material that he finds personally fun and probably thinks that people would enjoy. They, they mm-hmm. know what's iconic and what people have grasped onto, and I think they're content using that. So that does feel different from the original run, and I think it really is relying on fans, yeah, being familiar with, with past material and... Uh, I think to the the second part of that question, does it feel like it's out to provide kids a first time experience for the same material or not? I would say no, it it doesn't really feel like that to me. Um, I think it the way it plays, it feels like it expects you to know who the Red Ribbon Army was. Mm. Um, And for some of the the real sort of moment callback pieces toward the end. So uh, the fight with Cell and things like Gohan snapping and transforming at the end. Spoilers um feels i mean that's a one-to-one the his transformation scene is in an intentional visual callback to how he transforms in especially the animated version of the cell games yeah um and i don't feel like it's trying to give kids a first peek at that i think it interesting if it goes over kids heads and they enjoy it on the surface level that's great but they're not going to pick up on things like that visual callback unless they've seen it yeah yeah and they might have seen it through a video game because video games have created that you know what that's a fair point Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but i think it is relying on you having seen that material and it's relying on you getting extra fun out of it being a callback in a new context so um Um, i don't feel like it's doing what heroes does or what something like dragon ball sd does or what some of the ancillary there is ancillary material that feels like it is made for kids who maybe have not been through the original series um this doesn't feel like this 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 feels like it's it's toriyama and it's toei acknowledging hey the original moment was fun here we're gonna give you a callback to have fun with yeah. It's a callback. We want you to have seen it. That's very at the fore. Yeah, and I, and I will say with the the premise and the characters, um, I feel like they intentionally subvert expectations in a few places, especially with uh, Magenta being the driving force for revenge in the film, and Hedo being this sort of neutral scientist who is not necessarily a good guy but his primary motivation is to be able to continue his research and he doesn't care about revenge he's strung along by the promise of milk and cookies pretty much and unlimited funding because previously he was stealing corpses and turning them into artificial humans and making them work at a convenience store to get research funding yeah i think that's really important too right uh when I say like there, there are moments at the very, very end, like most of the things that feel like sort of unabashed callbacks happen in the last 15 minutes. Um, mm. And before that, even though it's relying on past material, yeah, it is very subversive with how it uses it. It's very it, it feels like it's holding nothing sacred, which is, I think, a phrase I would use a lot in regards to this film. Yeah, um, yeah it, it has the Red Ribbon Army again, but nothing about how the plot plays out is what you would expect uh yeah hedo doesn't even like that his grandfather had a connection to the red ribbon army it made it hard for him growing up um he doesn't want to help magenta and carmine he just kind of is is coerced into rolling along with it barely um he doesn't like cell max he doesn't like the fact that he's relying on his grandfather's research for that mm-hmm. um so it feels like it's really the first 90 percent of the film feels very tongue-in-cheek and irreverent with how it's using the callbacks and then i think one of the reasons the the unabashed sort of here it is, let's have fun with a reference moments at the end of the film 
the reason those feel okay for me is because they're coming off of that start. And so mm. at the end, I at least was like, instead of feeling cynical with them, I was like, okay, you've you've done your own irreverent thing for so long that if you want to have fun with some callbacks at this point and be sincere about them just being awesome, go for it. I, I was totally willing to allow it that. And I think that context is important. Um, they they set up so pretty early then, huh? The reveal in the flesh is much, much later, but they mention him pretty early on. You get a little uh, screen image of him on, on a computer screen at the base, too. So you kind of know this is coming for a long time. It's telegraphed, yeah. Yeah, it's not a, a third act surprise. Norio Wakamoto? Yes? I, I did catch his name in the credits. That was one I noticed. Um, and yeah, you can tell it's him from the first couple of grunts. That's all he does in this movie. He just grunts and screams. Um, <laughs> so does Byron. Which is like not so different. Th- <laughs> yeah. Not so different than a lot of his spoken performances recently. But uh, And so in, in terms of plot. It's fun. It's fun to have him. In terms of the actual plot. It, it was about as necessary for it to be sell as it was to have Bio Broly be a clone of Broly and not something else. You know, it's nice to get some Norio Wakamoto stuff, but like there's no there's no sentience there. It's just a rampaging, mindless monster. Yeah, it, it does feel very much like Bio Broly. And there are a lot of I don't know if they're unintentional or not. I'm assuming unintentional callbacks like the premise of a giant rampaging clone of a previous villain even the team that goes at it at the end where it's trunks uh goten kurin 18 is accidentally almost a, a bio broly reunion right i don't know how intentional that is i i feel like i feel like it's all a complete accident but who knows maybe toriyama did watch that as he was developing the script yeah. um yeah as, as far as what Selmax does it's it's just iconography it's, it is something you recognize just for fun and i guess there's expediency as far as um, like, okay, why is there a big kaiju villain that's this strong? Uh, it's a clone of Cell, and you don't have to question it then. Um, and it makes sense with the Red Ribbon Army. Um, yeah, could it have been something else? Definitely. Um, I guess your mileage may vary on how fun or derivative that feels. Although I thought of another parallel here, and it's that in both films, Goku is just about as relevant. Right, we yeah. haven't talked about this at all. <laughs> Goku and Vegeta have not really come up as part of this discussion. They're the least interesting part of the movie. Yeah. Like their big climactic sparring match is not even shown. We see the end, like after they're both completely worn out and they just fall over with barely a hit. Does Goku show up at the end and just say like, oh, sure sounds like Cell's got some problems down in hell. I better go take care. They don't even know about it. They don't even, uh, they never learn of the the peril this time, right? Um, That's great. I mean, from from these trailers, I mean, we saw Goku and Vegeta up on like the the lights and Carmine showing off Um, there. Broly's in this film. What happened? (laughs) It's not that kind of movie, I guess. Right. Broly does watch the fight and he's quite moved by it. Um, We don't get to see it, though. We see it. We see the start and then we cut back to it post credits. Um, So if you leave the theater too early, which no one does in Japan, by the way, no, it's um, awkward. Everyone always sits the credits. If you see it overseas, uh, don't leave too early. Um, well, we've been accustomed. Oh, yeah, to I guess that like Marvel, Marvel movies have trained yeah. people to not do that now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, they they get a fight that we don't see the bulk of. We just see a comedy beat ending of them finishing when they can both barely stand. And uh, yeah, it feels almost like they feel like the most cynical part in a way. Like it feels like they're just there because it's a Dragon Ball movie and they have to be, or or like they're there because you need them for the trailers. But they're so tangential. And I, I will say, uh, my least favorite part of the film is the sections on Beerus's planet with them because it. It feels like the main plot has dragged to a halt and we're watching these characters that we don't really care about in this film. And also, I don't know, it 
the, the treatment of of uh, Chilai being go, going from sort of um, kind of a fan service character into like overt. We know she's a fan service character, and we're gonna treat Beerus like a Looney Tune in response to it. it. Was maybe a little bit over the top. I don't know that we needed that. It's not great. It's not great. Uh, Ian, this is probably more for you, but then I kind of like questioned if this even needs to be asked, if they're not even really relevant to the, the story. Um, but how did the Goku and Vegeta bits here feel in a in a story point that would have to be post Granola, which we know it would be because of Pond's age? Um, yet this film is written before the current manga arcs have been written. Um, so I guess does it even matter with the role that they play here? Um, it it doesn't matter. It's it's like Broly where you can slot it in with either version of Serialized Super if you want to. It has about as many ways it works and doesn't work as that film did. Um, you can you can slot the broad strokes in because it's written in a way where it doesn't have to call back to any previous material explicitly. Yeah. Um, but if you get nitpicky, there are things that do feel a little bit weird trying to connect it. Um, it just is what it is. Uh, I guess we'll see, especially in future projects, how they want to handle continuity uh, alliance or, or how well it aligns with either serialized version of Super Moving Forward, how much they do want to acknowledge manga-only content if it stays manga-only. Um, I can't make any predictions about how they'll handle it based on this one. Uh, the, the one thing I have learned uh, being on the internet in the aftermath is that it feels like it absolutely fits in with whichever version you like more and absolutely can't fit in with whichever version you don't. And of course, everyone's going to see it their own way. Yeah, (laughs) of course. I I feel like there's so many entry points to the franchise now that people have their different priorities and we've been in it for so long that our priorities have shifted over time. It's like, you know, at this point, you know, I could take or leave some of the fighting, but I I stay for the character bits and Toriyama's. Give me that banter. (laughs) Give me an hour and a half of banter. I'm good. Toriyama's kind of gone the same route, I feel. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't even write the action scenes anymore, right? He he pretty much leaves them up to the staff. Um, yeah. I think they did a great job in this one, but yeah, uh, you can feel that where you don't get the kind of the same kind of um, like specific beats and mix of character character interaction and action that you would if he were handling all himself. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think this film did the best of that mix, I think, of any of the Toriyama scripted ones, maybe except Battle of Gods, which had very short action sequences. But yeah, he pretty much farms out the action. That's not what he's interested in doing, or at least when he's not drawing it, which makes sense. Like uh, Gamma 1 and 2 have uh, some banter that they do while they fight, which kind of fits their superhero persona. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm thinking also of the the ending, the climactic fight, uh, the Piccolo and Gohan moments there are... I think pretty successful and they're baked into the action. I think that's another spot where like the choreography and the, the flashiness of the climactic fight is like not not really there. Like there's not a whole lot happening except like giant Piccolo and Cell punching each other. It's not super interesting, but they weave in those character interaction moments between Gohan and Piccolo there. So I'm more engaged in that fight than I am like a lot of Broly, which is very pretty, but it's all just visual fighting. Uh, something you just hit on there that we haven't talked about at all, which I feel like the internet is aflame over. Shock there. Uh, new forms in this film. I mean, the, the things you haven't talked about, I feel like say a lot about what kind of film this is. No real hangups on Goku and Vegeta saying that like that's the least interesting part. Um, <laughs> no one has mentioned up until just now the phrase giant piccolo. Um, are these kinds of things just not that important? to the success of the film? 
they're funny. Yeah, I would say they're they're fun and they're funny. Um, Giant Piccolo especially is is played like a comedy beat, and even I guess oh, Piccolo has a new transformation. Um, they hid one in the trailers. They didn't let you see it. the The world doesn't want you to see Orange Piccolo. He's there. He's real. He can't hurt you. Um, <laughs> yeah, he Piccolo has a whole extra transformation in this, and it's played like it's played like a joke. It's fun and it's cool at the same time, but it's yeah. played like a joke. And I think that vibe is like that's what a lot of the boo arc does too, yeah. where it's like mm-hmm. there's so much tongue and cheekness to it, but it is also sincerely being cool and like exciting at the same time. And that yeah. that I feel like is all over this film where. Orange Piccolo shoves, shows up and he's he's ridiculous. And the way he names himself is ridiculous. Gohan asks him to give his new form a name. He doesn't even realize that he was orange. And when he's told he is, he just goes, okay, well, it's it's Orange Piccolo then. Um, <laughs> it's, played, it's played like a joke. It's played like it's making fun of elements of Dragon Ball Super. And that's very present. And at the same time, when he first shows up, I'm like, oh, that's like, that's stupid and cool. And like, I was sincerely on board with it at the same time as I knew it was ridiculous. And that is all over them. And the way that he gets the transformation, there's a beat where he decides to have, he needs the dragon to unlock his, his untapped potential, just like the, the great elder did on Namek for Gohan and Kuririn. And after some stuff with Dende, he finally gets the dragon to do that. And the dragon goes, Oh, by the way, I threw it a little something extra. And everybody thinks what? And then much later in the film, the, the little something extra appears. And okay, that was that was different. I will say also, yeah, we get giant piccolo later. Um, and that is also that's also it's it's cool and fun and ridiculous and funny at the same time. Um we get a straight up kaiju giant monster fight between him and a giant cell at the end. There are jokes, direct like actual jokes about his side, like him struggling to find a senzu in his belt when he's giant. And he can't get it at that point because it's microscopic to him. It's sincerely engaging and exciting. And it's also just completely ridiculous. That is everything that I want in a story right now. Like something that's not taking itself seriously, but simultaneously like kind of is and is being sincere about it. I don't know that that just sounds like Toriyama to me, like the Toriyama that I definitely remember in Boo Arc. Definitely where it's let's just go for it. Let's just throw things acknowledge that we threw things and go for the next one. I guess, do we want to really get into the elephant in the room here, which is the the main characters of the movie? And which, of course, I mean, Piccolo and Pan. <laughs> right. I haven't talked a lot about Pan here, <laughs> even though she's kind of like you, front You're not going to talk about Piccolo's bio weapon, Gohan? Uh, I mean, he's in the film. He fights. He's, he's in the film. He's, he's there. Yeah, but... He it takes him a while to do anything like Piccolo even shows up at his house at one point and he's like, nope, got to do research too busy. Uh, this is the first time we've really gotten to see Pon be a character in Super instead of a baby, which is strange, by the way, like Dragon Ball would never have babies around for that long. in it's original run. No, not interesting. No. <laughs> it get past them in time skips. Just kind of the nature of Super being placed in the timeline where it was. Um, but yeah, she's great. She I, they didn't do what I was sort of fearful they would based on the trailers where I was worried that her first outing as a, an actual character was going to be putting her in the damsel in distress role. Um, Cause that's how they make it appear. It completely subver- uh, subverts that she's never actually in any danger. Um, yeah. She's never actually in any danger and she's aware of needing to pretend to be in the damsel in distress role in order to draw her father out. Yeah. And she's having fun with it too, which is important. Yeah. She's not frightened at all of the situation. <laughs> Here's the deal. We've been going for 
I literally just hit an hour on the recording. I want this film in my veins right this second. <laughs> it, it sounds like you guys had such a great time with it. Uh, I guess my final question for you would be, is there anything that you didn't get from this film that you wanted? I, I do have one thing, I guess. Uh, this came the closest to, I think Toriyama is a very, very good short fiction author. Yes. Sometimes. Mm. If you want examples of that, you can pick up Toriyama, Toriyama's Manga Theater, which is now out in English in one volume from Viz. That has not come through really in the Dragon Ball movies he's scripted. The closest it came before this was Battle of Gods. This might be the closest now because it kind of works as its own standalone story with a beginning, middle, end. But it's still very reliant on outside Dragon Ball material. And I think in particular, like we barely talked about Gohan and we just joked about him not being a main character. Um, <laughs> we haven't even talked about are we going to talk about like Gohan's new form? No one cares. It doesn't matter. It's there. Um, <laughs> but like he has such a central role in the film and it's not that meaningful within this story itself. So I would love to see a movie that goes even further than this and feeling like a complete little Toriyama short yeah. set in the Dragon Ball world. And this one mm. is so close, but not quite there. I mean, it, the movie kind of treats gohan's central-ish role as a kind of a joke like they finally motivate him to come and fight by putting him into must protect pawn mode when she's not actually in any danger we never get the sense that he's aware of the fact that he's sort of being an absentee father that maybe he needs to be more hands-on in his daughter's life uh like she she treats it as a chance to be able to sort of have her father come out and play. She's not particularly concerned like with this lack of emotional attachment, but it's clear that she seems to interact better, if, if you could call it that, with Piccolo. Like they have more of an engaged relationship than she does with her own father. And it would be nice if they maybe leaned into that a little bit. It's not that kind of film, but yeah. That, that bothered me as well. I think that's kind of what I, I meant to get out there. Gohan has this main character role, but yeah, his arc in the film is they set up a problem for him, which is that he's putting his research ahead of Pan and she wants to bond with him. And the way she wants to do that is by seeing him fight because that's what she's interested in. So there is this perfect setup for a payup, set up for a payoff, which would be Gohan getting back into action and then also bonding with Pan and Pan Pan putting a weird different accent on that every time. Uh, bonding with her and reevaluating his priorities. And instead it just, it ends by giving him a big power up and they hug, but there's no real payoff for that. So yeah, it could work more as a complete standalone story in that regard. And it would, yeah, it would both pay off what the film does better and allow it to stand alone better because Gohan getting a new power up is really only meaningful if you're following Dragon Ball as a whole. And even then it doesn't really complete his arc as it's presented in this film. So, so close, but not quite there. Uh, any call outs with regard to performances or we haven't talked about the music at all. We have yet another new composer on this film. Mamoru Miyano. I mean, we've got brings, Mamoru Miyano. Yeah. For the first time he's, here. He's as over the top as always, maybe not quite as over the top as some of his other roles, but like he brings that sort of cami. I'm, I'm aware of the role that I'm playing kind of sly, uh, self-awareness because you know, it's, it's a self-aware hero that he's playing who is technically the antagonist of a decent chunk of the film, although he ends up doing heroic things. Yeah, all of the new cast is great. Um, I think the old actors, uh, Nozawa in particular, has a lot more energy here than I think she's had on certain recent projects. Yeah. It's hard to say because a lot of 
what she does otherwise in the Stone family role is like heroes in yes. video games. But yeah, I yeah. think even compared to a lot of super TV, she feels really on her game here. Yeah. I mean, super TV show, some of her portrayal of Gohan seemed to lean towards maybe Goku, maybe because it didn't have the sort of um, much more proper um, enunciated way of speaking that she tends to give to Gohan. And I thought maybe that might be due to age, but then she's really on the ball here. Uh, the, the characters are very clearly delineated and she doesn't seem to have any trouble there. Maybe it was, maybe it was the material. The material. Maybe she was off. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say scripting. Maybe, maybe she got new dentures. I don't know. Truly final thoughts. I mean, it sounds like a great film again. I want it. Um, Julian, I give you your final thoughts here. Go. Um, I had a ton of fun with it. Hey, wait, did you bring the kids? Was this a family viewing or did um, you go alone? I, I wanted to bring the kids and they said no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, just talking more about target audience. I think, well, there we go. Yeah. Well, my daughter is 12 and my son is nine. You know, you think that'd be peak sort of uh, shown in manga exposure. And they, they do like um, Spy Family and, and Demon Slayer and they're cool with that. But like dragon ball that's old well i mean that's kind of a conversation that i keep bringing up is that this isn't real dragon ball this is dragon ball for old people (laughs) the kids don't want it (laughs) oh dear well i thought it was great but um yeah if you go in expecting like dramatic heavy fighting for most of the film you're maybe going to be disappointed but if you go in with the expectation of having a good time with the characters, I think I think you'll enjoy it. And Goku is very much de-emphasized as the, the star of the film, and it really gives uh, especially Piccolo a chance to shine as a character and his just delightful awkwardness dealing with humans and their shit. <laughs> ah, I hear he shines orange. Uh, about you, final thoughts on Dragon Ball Super Superhero. Yeah, um, since we talked about target audience, I will say just anecdotally, my screening was predominantly kids because I saw it the the first Saturday it was open. This is so um, fascinating. A lot of families there with elementary uh, elementary age school uh, school children, and then there were also like a decent number of like me equivalents, like people in their late twenties, thirties, um, like going alone or as a couple. Like it was it was a mix. Um, and uh, yeah, I will say, I mean, there are kids who are still in Dragon Ball. Usually, it's they're getting into it through ancillary media or they watch super on TV. Um, I did hear kids behind me, like one of them who had been through more of the series, I guess was like explaining plot points to his friend who hadn't seen it all. Awesome. Um, <laughs> who probably only knew parts of it through the video game. So there's that going on too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had a great time with it. I would say if you have a chance to see it in theaters, definitely, definitely do that. Um, yeah. I think the scale and sound and everything are so impressive yeah. that way. Um, that's the way to do it. Yeah, there was a theater nearby that. Sorry, I'm overlapping you, but uh, there was a there was a theater theater near me that even had like a regular version and a like big sound version. Like they were. Oh yeah, they were doing oh. IMAX on this. Yeah, so I would like to see this in IMAX. It wasn't it wasn't chance, an IMAX but. showing, but I think maybe they're specifically doing one where it was everything sort of hits you. I would say, yeah, see it in theaters. And then I would say there's still no Dragon Ball movie that I would say is a big recommendation to non-fans. This one comes the closest. I think if you know nothing about Dragon Ball and you had to pick one movie that you would have the best time with, it would be this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess uh, in comparison to Broly, like Broly I had fun with, but I left this feeling really excited about Dragon Ball again. And uh, yeah, I got a kick out of this in a way that I haven't 
Um, I think maybe anything since some of the very, very early revival stuff like Jocko Battle of Gods um, really, yeah. really feels like everyone was into making this and this it really comes through. Thank you, of course, to Julian and Ian. It's uh, it's difficult making the time to record when folks are on the other side of the planet and then getting two of them at the same time. I'm so appreciative <laughs> they were able to do that. Uh, we will get Julian's mic issues sorted out for next time. And also apologies on me seemingly knocking my mic off center before clicking record, too. Uh, it is a goddamn amateur hour around here. My bad. Website stuff. Here is what is new on Konzenshu right now. I mentioned this at the top of the show, but you absolutely have to check out. We teased this forever ago. It is now done. It is complete. All three parts. This is a panel from what was called Unite Tokyo 2019. Uh, the Unite there is a weird play on Unity, the game development engine. It's ostensibly a kind of convention. Well, like not even... <clears throat> It is a gathering of professionals <laughs> that come together and are supposed to talk about game development and Unity is the background, but obviously Unity was not used to create the first Budokai game. But here we are. Three-part discussion. So, so good. Uh, Kazuhiko Torishima, a name you certainly have heard if you've been around the Konzenshu block for a while, uh, is the main deriving um, vocal point on this panel. Uh, alongside him, Daisuke Uchiyama and Shin Unozawa. So much incredible specific detail as to how they got to where they got to and why Torishima does the things that he does. Uh, you have to read the series. It's, it's just so, so goddamn good. Uh, Jose... Zenpai has just been going nuts on this stuff. More video game things coming from him in the future. I've kind of made it a point to lean a little more heavily on some of this video game stuff. Just, it was relating to some of the things I was writing on the site and on the wiki, honestly, in the side. So, all right, here's how I even got to <laughs> that, that panel series was I was checking out Japanese. I think we told this story, um, many moons ago um, I was checking out Japanese Wikipedia for uh, references for some of the things that they were saying there and that's what drove me to this Unite Tokyo panel uh, and so I was doing some work on the Budokai wiki page uh, and as you've certainly hopefully uh, read and checked out the updated rumor guide has an in-depth article uh, that the English dub did not in fact hold back story content in the first Budokai game you get the entire story on why it was the way it was in these translations um, that's what got me over there and then that just keeps leading us back to the super history book which is just so completely packed and, and full of amazing information uh, that we just haven't gotten around to getting out there so so I've really been feeling the the video game stuff and, and Zenpai's kind of been on board with that. I feel like this kind of ties into a, a question and comment we got on Twitter about translation and specific things and will we translate them? Um, and I responded, our priority in translations are things that are in kind of generally in this order, specific to Dragon Ball to Toriyama, that obviously makes sense. Uh, things that are historically important, things that are relevant to an ongoing site project. And then finally, and sometimes this wraps back around to number one, uh, something the translator themselves want to do. Uh, all of those are kind of important to how something gets done um, because we can throw something at someone, but if they don't 
themselves have the interest in in doing that you know it's going to fall to someone else um, when you have an interest in it at least from my outside perspective as a non-translator at Gonzenshu, uh it really seems like um it, it lights a fire <laughs> in many ways there's other translation stuff on the website we're keeping up with the 40th anniversary uh this tribute gallery uh yusei matsui was the latest one yes of uh, assassination classroom fame doing their take on a tanko bone cover again this is on the back of every psycho jump every month a little new drawing and a, a comment from the author that also saying that you wouldn't know from looking at this stuff at any other website that there's a comment from the author there that's what Konzenshu is here for and we will bring you that comment uh, I think they're interesting I think we get cool little insight into this behind the scenes stuff and them talking about you know their time growing up and and reading it oh god it's so good I'm let me read you this sentence here. Mm, it's so good. However, Toriyama Sensei's art is the only one whose technique I feel I can never get quite a hold of. No matter how many years pass, it still keeps its magical status. It's easy enough to imitate, but its essence will forever remain out of reach. That's a feeling I get once again, as I have the privilege of imitating that image of the ideal manga artist. That's a... Fucking deep, man. I love getting these comments. So uh, be sure to check us out every month as we bring you the latest uh, art and comment from the back of Psycho Jump, a magazine that no one should ever have to purchase ever. Speaking of uh, other new translations, uh, Ian's dipping into some superhero stuff. He gave us a brief interview with Chikashi Kubota, animation supervisor for uh, Superhero, which we talked about earlier in this episode. Uh, You can check that out on the website. But beyond translation stuff, uh, just general news and content, keeping up with Superhero news itself, the theatrical release coming internationally. Uh, This is something that I put in the news post. We saw this a bit with Broly, where it was kind of vague how they announced it. Um, obviously, this is a couple of years ago at this point with regard to dubbed and subbed screenings and how it was written in a way that allowed it to be accurate. The fact that in the United States of America, there were no subtitled screenings and the reading on the news articles for superhero struck me in that same way where they weren't explicitly stating, yes, the U.S. very specifically, you guys will also be getting subtitled screenings. I really felt like it was a vague enough kind of thing of like, well, we're doing dub and sub globally. Uh, So I kind of triple check directly with Crunchyroll themselves on this, like laid it all out and said, is this true? Is the United States of America getting subtitle screenings of superhero? And the answer back was an emphatic yes. I still will believe it when I see it, <laughs> but that's where we are right now. All right. Another thing mentioned earlier on the, in the show guest episodes, these are already in the feed. If you're a subscriber, if you use things like iTunes or overcast, uh, and if you're not, well, there's a post on the site with links that I will also then link alongside the show Two guest episodes. Check out if you haven't already, uh, the first, we got a podcast, longtime friends of the site, Randy and Doug, uh, their dragon ball podcast. I joined on an episode to talk about plan to eradicate the science. Uh, I love, Question mark? That production? 
Well, I certainly know things about it. <laughs> so I was happy to join them and talk about Planter Eradicate. Uh, that was a super, super, super fun episode. I love chatting with those dudes. Additionally, the Manga Mavericks podcast invited me on to chat about Akira Toriyama's Manga Theater. Yes, I was so grateful to be able to talk about it for something like three hours. I forget how long that episode was, but it was a long episode. So it is a doozy. If you want to hear um, me kind of like gushing yet, simultaneously heavily criticizing <laughs> early Akira Toriyama and then into Dr. Slump and then into Dragon Ball. I love, love, love so many of his one shots from uh, those eras. Please check out that episode. Again, that is already in the feed if you're a subscriber to the Content Shoe Podcast. If not, you can very easily check it out and I would encourage you to do so. And I would be remiss not to mention the absolutely spectacular artwork that Darren put together. Darren was the other guest on the show. Holy cow, that artwork, I... Mm. It's just amazing to to be able to be immortalized in Toriyama fashion in that way. Uh, truly, truly brought me to life in a way that no one else ever has, can, or will. So mega thanks to Darren on that. That said, I'm going to wrap it up with a reminder about our Patreon. We launched this back on April 1st. We talked about it extensively in the last regularly numbered podcast episode. That was 492. Uh, and if you heard me talk about it, then you know I don't like to talk about this kind of stuff. So um, I will just say, if you want all the deets, check that out. The long and short of it is that we're keeping it simple um, with a $1 general support level and a $5 Discord access level. So if that sounds like a thing you're into, we would love to have you right now as I type these notes. Well, I'm no longer typing these notes. I'm reading from this notes. We're having an extensive conversation about Dragon Ball evolution. I have complicated and emphatic uh, opinions about that film. So join us and talk about this and many more things. That all said, www.kanzenshuu.com. That is Shu. This brings us to a close. I will see you next time for another podcast episode. Uh, I have enough topics in the hopper that I'm not sure what the next one will be. It is likely going to be uh, a shorter solo one, video game related. We shall see if that is indeed what comes next. So stay tuned to the feed. Stay tuned to the website. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, of course, to Heath as well for everything he's doing for me behind the scenes. We will see you next time. Later, folks.